Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. Today I'm going to bring you the audio from a presentation that took place at St. Emlyn's Live, our conference back, just at the end of last year, around about October. And it's from Ashley Liebig, who I'm sure you know, an amazing clinician who works out in Texas. She is a pre-hospital specialist and she does quite incredible things. Also one of the best speakers I think I've ever worked with. In this presentation, Ashley's going to be talking about the psychological performance in the recess room and the fact that it's really not all about the knowledge and skills that you have, but how they are applied, how you work with others, how you ensure that you're in the the best possible place that you can perform those knowledge and skills to the best of your ability and also for the rest of the team and all of those around you. I think when I started off in medicine, I did think that if I just acquired all the knowledge and I practiced all the skills, that would be enough. And now I'm a more senior clinician, I realize that it really isn't. And I'm sure we all know people who've got lots of knowledge or great skills, but they can't work within a team or they can't get the best out of themselves or the people around them because they can't cope with the psychological performance aspects. So I think in this presentation, I, I believe it's really important that we teach this, we learn this and we talk about it, we reflect on it and we give feedback on it in our resuscitation rooms. So enough of me, let's get on to Ashley and this fabulous talk. So um, I am Ashley Liebig, just as um, Ian said. I am a flight nurse and helicopter rescue specialist and swift water swimmer and division chief for EMS in Travis County, Texas. Oh my God, that sounds like you have four jobs. I do. (laughs) Um, Not a lot of sleeping. So um, we're going to get on with it. So for a moment, I would like all of us to just take a deep breath together. (sighs) We're going to gaze off into the distance or into this photo and I'd like you to imagine a clinical scenario that would be difficult for you and if you are a master and there is no such thing, something that would be difficult for one of your juniors that may cause them some stress. Do you have it? Everyone has something or knows someone who one time was uncomfortable? All right, we're going to come back to that in a minute. So. Keep that in your mind, stick it right there, put it somewhere where you can get it quickly. So um, on the way here on my flight, I was thinking like how weird this is, right? Because I'm coming to a conference to talk about resuscitation and performance in the year 2018. And this is me in 2005, a combat medic in the 101st Airborne Division. I was deployed just outside of Baghdad into an area that the media coined the Triangle of Death. And this is where I experienced fear for the first time. It's also where I experienced unimaginable courage. It's where I learned that in one moment you can not make a difference. And in one moment you can be everything. I began to understand what stress looked like and what happened to our bodies when we experienced it and how we reacted to that. It was here that I fell in love with pre-hospital medicine um, because of that thing that happens to you. It's that weird thing when we receive trauma patients in the midst of the chaos, there's this sort of quiet and calm. There's this thing in all of the stress. Sometimes it can become too much, but then other times it feels so fluid and it's just right. We execute those moments and movements absolutely perfectly and clearly as a team. 
um, it's like that slow motion, you know, like I always think of the movie when the, was it the Matrix and the bullet, you know, and he's doing this thing and it looks so cool and it's, it's just everything is how it's supposed to be. And then so, a, oh, they're just getting the Matrix thing over here, these guys. <laughs> or is that, or are you laughing at my back bend? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's over a decade later. Um, and I am almost certain now that I've spent some time studying it and learning about it that this is where I learned or where I experienced true flow for the first time. And everybody knows what I mean when I talk about flow, right? So it's that thing, we might, you might not call it flow, but if you're in the zone, um, or we could also say you're, you've got your groove, although I don't know how languages translate always necessarily, so I never wanna say anything dirty, but um, it's that thing, it's that where you're unstoppable, you've got this, you're 100% and you know it feels good. You don't wanna be distracted from it. You're inspired, you're moved, you're motivated, and it's completely intrinsic. So you're writing this article and then maybe you, someone interrupts you and you realize, oh my God, it's the next day. And I've just been in this state where time has stood still for us. But the thing that you're asking yourselves right now is, why do I care? Why do I care about flow? What should we care and how does this help my practice? I came here to learn some clinical medicine and some education. So what if I told you today that I'm gonna teach you a couple of really simple concepts that would increase your happiness, reduce your stress, and make you a better clinician? Um, you would think that I was selling you something, right? It's too good to be true. It's like an infomercial. Flow, 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 we've got flow. Call 1-800, right? But that's not really what I'm doing up here. So in the night, around, I think, 1985, Dr. Csikszentmihalyi um, started writing and talking about flow in the context of um, our happiness and as this is being our pathway. So he says, and, you, and for the back, I would never read a slide, but for the back, the best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, reflexing times. The best moments usually occur if a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Oh, I'm gonna get in so much trouble on Twitter for having so many words on a slide. <laughs> but look at the guy's name, I mean, right? It's incredible. <laughs> so, cut me some slack here. But if you look at that though, difficult and worthwhile, that is where we're achieving our happiness, when we accomplish something difficult or worthwhile. So this is a state in which we are actually wholly focused. We're not too stressed, we're not too bored. We're, this is our optimum performance state in this flow channel where challenge and skill are increasing together. You're gonna notice a little difference in the next slide. <laughs> so, um, in order to, so we'll go, we'll, I'm going to tell you about that later, remind me. Um, but in order to really get the idea of what we're trying to grasp here, I think it's important to understand Yerkes Dodson's law. So, this, even though the photo is a bit dodgy, I think you can get the idea here. So, um, performance versus our arousal. You, if we're low, we're bored. We get up here and we're in our high space. We're like, yeah, this is perfect. But right here, we're in the no zone. We don't want to go here, right? Because we don't, our de performance decreases if we become over aroused, if the threat, if we assess our threat to be too large. So if we want to be elite performers, we must learn to conduct a threat assessment, 
and regulate our response. And when I talk about a threat, I'm talking about negative emotions. I'm talking about fear. I'm talking about lack of preparation. I'm talking about lack of confidence or lack of skill. So we view every single scenario from our own frame of reference. So what is fear-inducing for me may not be fear-inducing for someone here. It's always important to consider everyone's frame and your own frame, aware of the things that make you uncomfortable. So let's assess this threat. So clowns are creepy as hell to me, okay? So I think my parents showed me the movie It when I was a little kid or something, and I immediately feel threatened by this. Like, I can't even look at it right now. So um, this, I have to learn how to regulate this response. And so in this context, I would use cognitive reappraisal to reframe the meaning of this stimuli. So it turns out that that clown is not actually a bad guy. He's really a 82-year-old grandfather of eight, and he's been married for 56 years, and he just adopted a three-legged dog because they saw it get hit by a car. I mean, he's like a saint, right? He's an amazing guy. So when you realize that we change our threat assessment, this becomes, I, I mean, I'm a fan, right? He's no longer terrifying. What is happening? No, go back. Sorry. So many slides. There we go. Um, so reframing reduces that immediate emotion, that distracting emotion. So it also reduces the physical and neurological response to that event. Cognitive reappraisal is um, a focus on our internal narrative, that, that constantly reinforcing the things that we are saying to ourselves. This influences how we perceive this threat or this stress. So um, do you guys know who Stuart Smalley is? Does anyone recognize? Um, so this is a guy on late night TV, and it was intended as a joke. And he got on television, he looked in the mirror, and he said, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. And so at that time, it was a joke, but we just listened to the incredible Natalie May say that she did this sort of daily affirmation all the time. I do this affirmation right before I'm about to get out of the helicopter. We're good at this. We got this. This is a fist bump, right? This is our affirmation of our goodness. So it's not about feigning positivity. We're not trying to fake the funk here. It's about fuel economy. It's about efficiency. It's about making the choice that we want to, where we want to spend our energy and our focus. We aren't being silly. We are actually choosing our responses. So we're going to take a moment because you've got the concept, but we're going to practice. So I want you to talk to the person next to you. Not yet. I'll tell you in a second. But I want you to tell them what you're afraid of or something you dislike and why. And then the other person is going to reappraise that fear for you. So for example, Ross. I'm super afraid of public speaking because I don't want to look like an idiot in front of all of my friends and colleagues. What say you? I think the audience love you. The fact that you stand up there and share your opinion it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to have the slides all in the right direction. Thank you, Ross. So that's how that works. All right, you have two minutes, something you're afraid of or something you don't like and why the other person reappraise that for them. Rainbows and unicorns in here, go.
I was just tweeting. I just took a photo of all you guys while you're doing that. I just tweeted, my audience is so rude. No one's paying attention. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. <laughs> but that would be kind of funny. All right. You guys are really cool. All right. So who wants to, uh, oh, wait. Damn it. Oh, sorry, Simon. No swearing, we were told. All right. So who wants to share? Give me a, someone share. Someone share. Someone share. Come on, share. Okay, that's okay. It, it, you, hey, you didn't break the rules. We're just not allowed to say that. You can say whatever you want. Carry on with your profanities. Okay, so um, you changed that into? Um, I said that um, it's brave to try something you've never done before and to not try it all. Boom, look at that. I like it, I like it. All right, I'm sure everyone's were amazing. So the next thing we're gonna do is achieve, um, to achieve this sort of flow state that we're all talking about is to automate our performance. So I recognize that we are not all robots and that's a good thing, but if we can imagine all of the movements and algorithms in a difficult procedure, if we could do that in a robotic way and they just occurred automatically, these big beautiful brains would be able to completely <laughs> offload and focus on higher functioning tasks, right? So cognitive offloading, this really focus to anticipate and solve problems. So automaticity means that I have the bandwidth to manage whatever additional stresses are there because I don't have to share the attention with the stuff that's not automatic. So everyone can tie their shoes and have a conversation, right? But you can't probably tie this knot and have a conversation unless you've experienced some climbing or knot tying or whatever this is. I'm supposed to know because I think I do rescues for a living, but the guys, I can never remember the names of them. They're all very fancy. Um, but I'm going to show you an example of automaticity in my environment. So my team and I do um, winch or hoist rescue um, in swift water environments. So it's extremely robotic and scripted, but listen to this um, for the repetitive phrase. Okay, so what did you hear? Did you hear the same thing a few times? Rescuers in position, rescuers in position, rescuers in position. So <clears throat> take a look at this. This is captured in training. You'll hear rescuer in position and then watch my right hand. Rescuer, you one more turn. Roger. Fire check complete. 250 for 100. Roger, rescue in position. And you're clear the hoist now. Roger, holding. What'd you see? Yeah, spirit fingers, right? The spirit fingers thing. So that's a little side effect of automating my performance. So using self-talk and visualization and rehearsal. So a while back after a water rescue season um, where I got, had a little bit of a close call, I got really nervous. 
Um, and I had, it, it can be difficult to cognitively reframe the stuff that can kill you, right? So like you can't put a unicorn on that. So, <laughs> so I needed some additional skills for that. And um, what you can't hear is in, in that video, exactly the time I'm doing my spirit fingers is I'm going, girl, you got this, girl, you got this. So this is me talking to myself um, in that exact moment. I would bet uh, millions of dollars on it, in fact, because every single time I do that same thing. In fact, I didn't even know until my team pointed it out that I was doing the fingers. But I know that rescuer in position is, girl, you got this. Um, so what happened, though, after that close call was that every morning I would come into work, I would sit in the aircraft well, it's static like that, and I would rehearse in my mind a water rescue. So the goal was I would increase my confidence, which leads to optimum arousal and that flow state, right? So that I taught my brain to conduct this threat assessment, but I did this using a pet lip model. So I would put myself in the physical environment, so in the aircraft. I would use the same strategy that athletes use for their motor performance and imagery. So I'm in that position, out the door of the aircraft, I imagine the environment I imagine the task that we're going to do. I do the, those tasks, the series of tasks in real time. I update the image as I start to get better. In my brain, I'm starting to get better this, at this, and so I have to update the image. So I attempt to invoke that same sort of emotion or that fear currently, currently, and now it's just like, yeah, let's get it. But it was fear, so I would attempt that same emotion, and then I would do so from my perspective, as though I was seeing this thing like I had a GoPro on my head. So I started with just the algorithms, with just the script and just the things we say, the commands and the arm signals. But then once I got good at it, and I'm not good at pretend, so this sounded crazy to me, right? I was like, this one, okay, this is stupid. Um, but then I started to get good at it, and I progressed to rehearsing um, emergency procedures. What if I lost the victim? That was my big fear, right? What if they slipped through the strop? What if they slipped through my arms? Um, they would absolutely die. So what if the aircraft had an emergency, had to cut the cable and fly away without me there? What if I had to swim? Where would I go? What would I do? Where are the strainers? Where are the dangerous pieces? So every possible scenario I planned in my brain over and over and over and over and over again. I would do this several times um, every morning for a period of a couple of months. So when you develop a plan and you increase your confidence, you lose the worry of the what if. There was no more what if. It was only if XYZ happens, then I got a plan. So we were good to go. So I want you to think about the scenario that we started with in the beginning. Right? You have it? So your learner should, or you, it, also, and if you are, need to teach this to someone else, should be able to identify what the threats are, reframe the scenario, um, for an acceptable, not necessarily ideal, oh, I said I would hold that baby when it started crying. <laughs> I want that baby so bad. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to get distracted. Um, so um, the, uh, an acceptable outcome, not necessarily an ideal outcome, right? People die. Bad shit happens. This is our job, right? So what is the um, acceptable outcome? Uh, bad thing happens, but today we may not be the hero, but we're going to learn, we're going to grow in every situation. So identify the acceptable outcome. So now you can coach someone through this visualization and rehearsal using a pet lip model. You can identify and plan for threats. Um, when they encounter those, you just mentally rewind, you back the truck up, and then you start back over and move forward, and, just, and you just keep going until you get it right. 
So just a little bit ago, I told you that I would be able to teach you two things that would be able to increase your happiness, reduce your stress, and make you a better clinician. And that's pretty much exactly what just happened. Um, and you also learned that you should always put a new battery in your clicker. <laughs> but um, but that's, uh, that's it, folks. I want you to re reframe and rehearse your way there. And my hope for you is that you find your flow. Thank you.